When you think of action films, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Muscles? Explosions? Oh, let's not forget one-liners so corny they put dad jokes to shame. Like if you hit him with a surfboard, you would say, Surf's up, pal! Action films are what we watch when we literally want to turn our brains off. For the most part, they don't really challenge you as a viewer, except when you're trying to figure out one of the many plot holes, like, why didn't the planes circling Dulles and Die Hard 2 just reroute to another airport? That's not what this episode is about, though. Today's show looks at the period in which these blockbusters came to prominence and their impact on American culture. Yeah, phrases like masculinity and heteronormative might be thrown around, but I'll also look at movies that challenge our perception of the genre. Today's sociology is going to ruin action movies. Sorry. Before we talk about the era of big-budget blockbusters, we need to revisit the 1970s. For that, I'm going to highlight the work of Susan Jeffords, currently provost and vice president for academic affairs at Portland State University and a pop culture critic. She's written in detail about the remasculization of America in the post-Vietnam era. We think the world today is complicated, but people tend to forget Vietnam, the women's liberation movement, the civil rights movement, oil shortages, Watergate. They all happen within a relatively short time span. In action movies during the period, there's a theme of the loner, the white man, trying to claw back some sense of place in what he sees as a corrupt society. There's Charles Bronson taking revenge on street punks who killed his wife and raped his daughter in Death Wish. And then there's Clint Eastwood. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? With Reagan's election in 1980 came the neoliberal revolution, which shifted the focus on just about everything from government solutions to market solutions. The thing about neoliberal rationality is that it doesn't just affect the economy, it also influences civil society and the state. The market is a state of competition, and under this rationality, we all become competitors. Under neoliberalism, there's further movement towards rugged individualism and distrust in the government, which is seen as obstructing the market. A great example in popular culture is John Rambo from the 1982 film First Blood. He's a homeless Vietnam veteran. The government, we're told, failed his friend who died from cancer after being exposed to Agent Orange during the war. The local police want to bring him in on a trumped-up charge of vagrancy. So there are several institutions being criticized in the film. The military, Department of Veteran Affairs, law enforcement, healthcare. His solution is literally to blow it all up. Because these institutions, in his words, drew first blood. The criticism isn't entirely wrong, right? Uh, It's his method for reforming these institutions that's questionable. And he's also presented as, in Jeffords' words, a sacred king an epitome of manliness who seeks justice for those who are wronged. The biggest difference between the action hero of the 1970s and the 1980s is literally the size. In the 80s, masculinity became as much about how much you can bench press as how many street punks you could shoot. You also had to be able to cauterize your wounds on the battlefield. This image of masculinity played right into the national identity established by our first Hollywood president, Reagan. Post-Vietnam, American men had to be portrayed as strong and tough. Not only was it reclaiming what some saw as demasculinization of the American man during the 60s and 70s, but we also faced a Cold War opponent that the state and the market depicted as heartless and terrifying. 
dies, he dies. So for a genre that people typically view as nothing but escapism, there's actually a lot of interplay between the state and the market in the creation of these films, as well as the social construction of our national and personal identity. To discuss this and so much more, I am joined by Chris Klemek, who is a journalist, pop culture critic, and I'd say action movie expert. Uh, you wrote a pretty comprehensive treatise on the Die Hard franchise. <laughs> Um, I'm still waiting yeah. for the Fast and the Furious version, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime mm-hmm. soon, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I am a lonely, lonely wet blanket on that series, Matt. Uh, I, I have seen F9. I, I went to a, a screening of that a couple days ago, and I, you know, I, I feel like I'm tiresomely repetitive on this. I just, I wish I could see what so many people clearly see in those movies. People take such delight in them, and I. I I just don't get it, but I am I am happy that they give so many people such joy. I, I'm just poking fun at you because I know this about you. <laughs> See and listen to me trying to be so generous, trying to be be so you know it's not it's not it's not them, it's me. It's uh yes, clearly these these movies that make a billion and a half dollars at a time are are just just bad. That's the only possible explanation for how wildly successful they are. Um, well, it, it kind of leads into the topic that I'm looking at here. So uh, I'm really interested in, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, pop culture critic Susan Jeffords. Um, she said that Hollywood films offer clues about the construction mm-hmm. of our national identity. Um, I, and I think about this, I'm a big horror fan. And when I think of the genre, okay. the themes usually around revolve around utilizing collective anxieties like a pandemic. Uh, to tap into viewers' fears. But action, uh, at least for me, is not so much about maintaining tension about collective anxieties, but releasing that tension. Would you say that's an accurate read? Yeah, and I mean, I certainly think the horror genre is is probably a better graph of uh, what we're worried about at any given moment in time. I mean, in the same way that uh, science fiction set in the future, you know, never matters when it's set. It is always about the time when it's written, when it's created. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think um, action films are are more escapist than than horror generally. You know, horror depicts scenarios that the viewer would not want to to find themselves in. I mean, maybe they they get some kind of cathartic um, or some. Uh, vicarious experience of, of, you know, triumphing over their own comparatively, you know, less, less frightening, less, less supernatural, less, less whatever problems. Um, but I mean, I think action films are more power fantasies most of the time, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's something that's less variable based on whatever the uh, concerns of the the day are well there's usually some kind of injustice right there's a crime a corrupt system and the viewer gets this kind of personal power from seeing the hero whoever it is kind of take out the antagonist and there's always that gratifying you know hans gruber falling from the skyscraper um moment yeah but i mean it is it is fully personal i think i mean it is entirely based on on the viewer's level of identification with the hero of the movie. I think the, these movies most of the time like actively discourage us from taking away any any political reading of them. You know, I mean, I, I love Dirty Harry. I think Dirty Harry is a brilliantly directed thriller. Um, I abhor the politics of that movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't think cops should be vigilantes who just go and 
shoot the bad guy because the the legal system is corrupt and is going to let them go all the time. I don't buy any of that at all, but I but I like the movie. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Dirty Harry because um, one of the things I've been looking at um, within Jeffords' writing is that she talks a lot about masculinity in the genre and how it's shifted over the decades. So you have this post-Vietnam transition from action heroes like Dirty Harry to the more Reagan era, hyper-masculine heroes fighting a corrupt system like John Rambo or John Matrix, they're always named on in Commando. John Matrix, yeah, that that name is, you know, I mean, that that explains how he's clearly, you know, Austrian or German or whatever he's supposed to be, Uh, you know, with a long career in the American military, but... uh, yeah, that's that. I don't know. I think that's a particularly goofy action movie name, John Matrix. I love it. Um, so you have like these hyper masculine heroes, and then um, in the late '80s into early '90s, it shifts again, and you get the tough but compassionate heroes like Bruce Willis and Die Hard, who's really just trying to reconnect with his wife, or Bruce Willis and The Last Boy Scout, who's really just trying to reconnect with his wife. <laughs> uh, that's obviously is not representative of all movies released during the time period, but it's right. kind of the general trend, right? Um, so I'm trying to figure out like masculinity kind of evolves, these heroes evolve. Why? And I know that the Reagan era, we get a lot about Reagan as a president, as the action hero president. Yeah, well, I mean, a guy who was a, a movie star, you know, uh, and who was was governor of California. I mean, the 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 template for for Arnold in in many ways. I'm certain, you know, if, if Arnold were not constitutionally barred from running for president, I think he he certainly would have. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the 80s are when it becomes a, a you know a kind of puffed up steroidal cartoonish masculinity you know uh ambiguity and and nuance um yeah if if i can say something that doesn't have very much nuance to it but i mean that that seemed to go out with the the 70s but all all of these um you know when we generalize about uh the the transvenny given era i mean that tends to to flatten out exceptions too i mean a, a great example would be you look at the first Rambo movie, First Blood, and then the second one, the one that's called Rambo colon First Blood Part Two. Stallone cries in the first one. The original ending was he kills himself. I mean, that is not a morning in America, you know, rah, 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 uh, kind of jingoistic film at all. I mean, that's about a, a homeless Vietnam vet, a, a drifter, uh, you know, with all of the, the implicit critique of the way veterans were treated um, after the end of that war. You know where he he is provoked by a crooked sheriff, right? Brian Dennehy, um, you know, very unsympathetic portrayal of law enforcement. And just three years after that, you know, he's going back to to Vietnam. Oh, do we get to win this time? You know, I, I mean, it's a they are these movies. Uh, one is ostensibly a sequel to the other, but uh, I'd say thematically, spiritually, they are entirely unrelated. And uh, of course, the you know the much dumber one was a much bigger hit. Oh. Yeah, and then you have in the third one, he's in Afghanistan against the Soviets, helping the Taliban. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I've seen that one, but I know um, that was probably 88, which is the year after The Living Daylights, the first uh, Timothy Dalton, James Bond movie, where he also basically joins the Taliban in the final third of, of that film. <laughs> one thing I'm trying to figure out, though, is how did we get from John Rambo to Kindergarten Cop? Uh <laughs> You see uh, heroes like uh, Stallone and, and Schwarzenegger, and there's this 
huge shift in the 90s where you get I don't want to bring up Hudson Hawk, but you get these action heroes <laughs> who are moving into well, more comedic roles. Well, um, right. Kind of, right. Go, go ahead, because I know you want to talk. Sure, about you want me to? No, I mean, I, I <laughs> think, uh, I mean, if Hudson Hawk is emblematic of anything, it's, it's it's just like the sort of unchecked star power of that era. Like after a couple of diehard movies, Bruce Willis could do anything he wanted and spend a lot of money doing it. And he did. And I have always been grateful for 30 years, Matt. I have been grateful that uh, he shot his shot on something so weird uh and and so distinct but i don't i don't think it's emblematic of anything because that that movie would be as much of an anomaly now as it was in 1991 sorry what were we talking about oh no that's okay uh <laughs> well so yeah hudson hawk might be an outlier but uh, when we talk about schwarzenegger and kindergarten cop junior um he definitely tries to move away from this um Hyper masculine role right. into a more compassionate, and um, thinking about action movies as a reflection of national identity. I'm trying to figure out well, how did we get to Kindergarten Cop? Uh, was it the evangelical right, uh, Tipper Gore, the you know, insistence on family values in the media, this pushback against hyper violence? Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder, um, you know, how, like, to what extent is it important that that Arnold Schwarzenegger is an immigrant who? Like really, I mean, he didn't anglicize his name, you know. Uh, it's 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 got uh, a crazy number of syllables, and uh, you know, I mean, we know it now because he became famous. But I mean, I'm 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 sure that people reviewing Conan the Barbarian in 1982 kept checking the spelling. Uh, you know, didn't and, and I mean, this is a guy who came to the states in I think 1968. So I mean, even by the time he gets into the the movies, and I and I know this because I read his memoir Total Recall. <laughs> I I think he could have lost the accent if he wanted to. You know, I think if I think he just made a decision like this makes me more memorable. This makes me distinct. It's fine if people want to do the impressions of me, do parodies of me, whatever. You know, because people are going to know who I am. Um, I think that was that was very shrewd. Uh, I mean, as far as a reflection of the national identity. I, I don't know. I mean, of course, there's there's the the eternal thing where we will, you know, embrace and accept uh, white immigrants much more readily than than we will people of color coming to, to this country from from others, um, tragically. Um, but uh, I yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th I think, um, well, I, actually, the, the I always say like I, I the only way that that I would might have become a Republican is like if I had Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography you know I mean if I my <laughs> life had unfolded as his I'd like yes I would absolutely believe that that, that uh, this is the land of opportunity and and uh, the circumstances of your birth uh, have no bearing on on how high you can rise and and the arts and business and you know economically socially all those things so I I, I mean I think the fact that he embraced uh, his Americanness to the point that he actually, you know, joined the George H.W. Bush administration in a in a ceremonial role as the president's, I think it was the chair on physical fitness or so, you know, I mean, there there, there was, uh, you know, some period there when he was appearing in videos and putting on fit and actually doing the kinds of um, things that Michelle Obama would do later, you know, visiting schools and encouraging kids to exercise and eat better. And so I I don't know. I mean, it's that's that's interesting that he became the biggest star of that time, um, and a guy who is so, I mean, in an almost outsized way, embodying what we would like to think of as um, American values. You know, self determination, inclusion, that we're welcoming of immigrants, that uh, you know, 
anyone who wants to to participate in this society be, will be will be welcomed and celebrated. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, the fact that he was a bigger star even than than Stallone in that era. Um, you know, Stallone, another guy who who is like kind of our homegrown version of that. I mean, this is a guy who didn't didn't come from from any privileged background. You know, there, there's the story about how he had. I don't know, like five hundred dollars in his bank account when he wrote Rocky, and you know was was passing up big money offers for the just for the screenplay because he wanted to star in it. You know, um, he's probably a uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're gonna bring uh, nativism into this this uh, I don't know. I feel like that's probably more of a, unfortunately that's that's more of a component of uh, our discussions of national identity now than it was in in the eighties. I think we've really regressed uh, in, a, in an awful way. Um, actually, hadn't hadn't thought about that until you you pointed out what what is the the, the prominence of the, of these uh, stars in that era say about our, our national identity? Hmm. 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 I, I think most people who look at the um, popular film of the '70s and 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 '80s, you know, they they talk about us getting over Watergate, getting over Vietnam. I mean, in this, in the same way that that Reagan ran two very successful presidential campaigns by saying, like, oh, you know, we don't have to be reflective anymore. We don't have to be apologizing anymore. It's morning in America, you know, city on the hill. Uh, the movies kind of lost that uh, sense of mournfulness too. Uh, again, is best exemplified by the the stark difference between First Blood and Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned um, <clears throat> in First Blood how he cries. Um, there's also a lot of uh, in the many Rambo movies, he is always getting injured and cauterizing his own wounds, and <laughs> and um, just thinking about what that means in terms of manly manliness, like any of us, if we got those kind of wounds, like falling off a cliff down into a <laughs> trees and like ripping our arm open and sitting yeah. by the fireside, you know, that's manliness. You know, we, we would die. I, no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I would, I would hope to die before I soiled myself. Uh, I, I think would be my my highest aspiration in in that circumstances, uh, and, and and that you know I can't really imagine um, like opening a bullet and pouring gunpowder into my. <laughs> would would that even work? I want to uh, on your your future podcast. Medicine rules everything, Matt. You can you can uh, look into some of these these um, battlefield self surgery techniques and examine their plausibility. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing we're around the same age and um, these were our formative years watching these kind of movies and it kind of establishes for us what it means to be a man, not only, you know, the uh, going more into the 90s, like the vulnerabilities of our, our heroes, like Bruce Willis running on glass and stuff like that, but also the what it means to be tough and um, running on glass. <laughs> um, <laughs> going back and watching these movies and you know we kind of laugh at these things but what kind of effect do you think that has on on men yeah i mean that 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 is a great question i mean i certainly uh grew up with the um you know very uh, believing that there there was there was some connection between physical prowess and 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 someone's inherent worth their usefulness to to society which which clearly the um you know the the body craze in in movies in the eighties. Uh, I think was largely responsible for that. I mean, there were there was always like from the fifties, from the you know earliest. I mean, even like the thirties. I mean, there were there were strong men. There were uh, 
you know, um, figures who, who tried to sell insecure boys on the, the promise of uh, transforming their fortunes by, by transforming your, your body. Um, you know, but in the 80s, that really reached a kind of new steroidal crest that has now, interestingly, also been eclipsed again in the, in the last 10 years. Um, there was a, I think it was an Esquire article by Logan, Logan Hill, maybe I might be misattributing it, but about a decade ago, just sort of pointing out that uh, just regular male actors now, like not your, you know, the people who would have been specializing solely in action films a generation ago, like everybody is supposed to be in, in athlete shape. You know, and and uh, there's all kinds of eating disorders and and steroids and stuff. I mean, and these these are these are actors, these are performers. They're they're creating an illusion on camera. You know, they're not athletes, but uh, they are expected to to live like athletes now. So it's it's interesting that the the uh, the arms race, which is also an abs race and also a quads race and also a delts race. Thank you for laughing. Uh, <laughs> um, has reached a new a new peak um even beyond where it was in the 80s yeah i think now we have to talk about the rock um <laughs> yeah well he's he's kind of the the um endpoint of, of various uh trends that you've been been sketching out here i mean he didn't even make what would have been the equivalent of his conan the barbarian or, or the terminator i mean you know arnold had a few big bloodbath movies before he tried to represent himself uh, as a sort of a cuddly kid-friendly PG or PG-13 rated comedic actor who the whole family could could enjoy. And I think Dwayne Johnson was was kind of that from the beginning. You know, I mean, he was in a a, a couple of R-rated action films. Um there was one called The Rundown that I don't really remember. I know he was in Be Cool, the uh the really bad Get Shorty sequel um in in kind of a minor role but once he is making his own vehicles um they're almost uniformly you know pg-13 sort of quasi family friendly and of course he's you know he's doing all of these these family comedies now too like you know jumanji and jungle cruise and and all that so uh i i don't know i mean i i have uh i always feel like this this man is primarily an instagram influencer uh who who dabbles in movies but he's also the the biggest movie star of the time Probably, um, and the only the only real problem I have with that is I'm not convinced he has ever seen a movie that he didn't star in. Uh, the, I don't feel like movies are particularly important to him. You know, I think he's just decided like that is the best venue to promote his brand. Um, but that's very sophisticated. You know, I, I I mean again I feel like he is he is the evolution. Um, of of so many things that were uh, embodied, uh, no pun intended, by by Schwarzenegger a generation ago, including uh, that increasing, increasingly sophisticated and increasingly incessant self promotion. Uh, you know, before before Arnold was a movie star, he was um, a bodybuilding champion and was also sort of the like, but more than that, was like the ambassador of bodybuilding. Was was obsessed with getting that recognized as a sport and not just some weird you know, fetishistic, uh, you know, people didn't know what it was. Um, and he really, you know, was going on talk shows and things again, before he was even in movies was, was going around and being on Johnny Carson and, and promoting bodybuilding as a, as a sport and something that, uh, Americans should take an interest in because fitness is important. Um, yeah. So I think, I think Dwayne Johnson is the, uh, 
I don't know, the evolution of that, both uh, physically and that he's even larger yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, an even more, more aggressive self-promoter. Yeah, when I'm thinking about the the current state of the genre, um, it, it is you see um, The Rock as kind of the Schwarzenegger of today, right? Um, mm-hmm. We have, but we have movies that are calling back tropes to the past, like you know we have the Expendables franchise. Um, uh, John Wick, I would say, kind of goes back to that loner going after you know either corrupt society, uh, corrupt system. Yeah. But we also have more women and people of color in front of and behind the camera, which is leading to more compelling and unique takes on the genre. And I, I think it kind of reflects where we are now as a society in terms of this struggle between keeping things the way they were, hashtag making action movies great again, and acknowledging stories and life experiences not centered around white men. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? But if you want to go back and talk about Point Break, because I know we haven't touched on that, and if we're talking about masculinity... right. Well, point. I mean, Point Break is is a super interesting subject for that conversation because it was directed by Catherine Bigelow, who uh, until until Chloe Zhao won her Oscar, uh, you know, a few months ago, was the the only woman to have won a, a directing Oscar. Now she made Point Point Break uh, almost twenty years before that, before she made the the Hurt Locker. Um, yeah, but I I mean, I think Point Break just works as an action movie because it's it's very kinetic and and Catherine Bigelow is a great shooter. I mean, she frames and cuts action in a in a great way. In um, Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze, you have two very dynamic and and very athletic performers who can do a lot on camera. You know, you don't have to hide their physical limitations the way you have to with uh, Vin Diesel, but. Um, also, I, I mean, I think what's really interesting about that that movie is, um, you know, everyone talks about the the homoeroticism of, of Top Gun, right? Which, uh, and uh, there is there is that a Point Break really foregrounds that that story of a, a tortured friendship, you know, between two two men, two two nominally heterosexual men, but. Um, I would say it, I'd say it's not like homoerotic as so much as erotic. I mean, it's a, it's a woman, it's a heterosexual woman who is shooting these beautiful men, <laughs> and uh, you know their relationship is foregrounded. The the real tragic romance in that movie is between Keanu and Patrick Swayze, not between Keanu and Laurie Petty. And uh, also, you know, you look at at uh, Keanu and and um, and Swayze. I mean, these are not traditionally masculine guy. I mean, they're, they're certainly, I'm, I'm not saying they're unmasculine. I'm saying they were not bound by, uh, that, that stereotype even then. I mean, Swayze was a great dancer. Uh, you know, Swayze was in, um, to Wong Fu, thanks for everything. Julie Newmar a couple years after that in, in drag, uh, oh, don't forget roadhouse. That's true. Right. So I'm, I'm saying, right. So, I mean, Roadhouse was kind of the, the hyper mask. Yeah. Yeah. I keep forgetting this is not a visual medium and I'm mimicking having my throat ripped out. I mean, that's, that's a certain, certainly a cartoonish, um, but, uh, versatile, versatile, certainly more, more versatile than I appreciated at the time. And then, and then, um, in between, wait, no. Okay. So the sequence is Roadhouse in 89, Ghost in 1990, Point Break in 91. And Ghost, if I'm not mistaken, was the biggest hit of 1990. You know, I mean, that that movie was huge. So, uh, and also a different kind of role, one that doesn't require anything more physical of him other than, you know, making out on a, a lathe or whatever it was with uh, Demi Moore. Um, you know, but that's a that's a, a romance, right? That's a, that's a supernatural tearjerker. Um, and the fact that he could headline a movie like that. 
uh, and then turn around and play the the villain in Point Break, or sort of the you know the anti-hero that we're kind of until he kidnaps Lori Petty, where we're almost rooting for him, right? Because we don't uh, they they make a point of uh, of not hurting one in their robberies, and he even has a has a speech about how they they go in there brandishing their guns because no one will resist them, and then they don't have to hurt anybody, you know. And of course, that all goes wrong in the in the third act, as it as it must for the movie to have a climax. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the point break is uh, foundational. Um, and I, obviously it, it inspired the whole Fast and Furious saga. Um, I'm putting air quotes around the, around the saga. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that was a, a movie in, in terms of the way it presents a relationship like that between two men ahead of its time, Matt. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, and of course, you, there's a lot of talk right now about, uh, you know, Anthony Mackie talking about the friendship within Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this rush to identify things as homoerotic when I think that sometimes people forget that, you know, men can be friends. Have we had like an out of uh, LGBTQ uh, plus action hero in a, in a movie yet who presents that way. I mean, there, there are some characters in um, the old guard, the, um, the Charlie's Theron, uh, Gina Prince Blythe action movie that was on Netflix last year that I, that I, I enjoyed. Um, and I, and I thought those characters were, were great and nuanced and, and well depicted, but we, I don't think we've seen a, a lead yet. Right. Who is just presented as out and proud, uh, queer. Have we? Was uh, Dal Kilmer's character in um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Oh yes, uh, Gay Perry. <laughs> but of course, his name is Gay Perry. <laughs> right. I mean, they're they're uh, you know, and I and I would argue that um, the way Shane Black is is using um, slurs in that movie is is in a way that that makes the bigots the the butt of the joke rather than the um, you know LGBTQ. Plus people, but um, certainly that that's debatable. And and um, earlier Shane Black films do do use uh, a homophobic slur, uh, not in such a uh, carefully presented way. Um, it's in Lethal Weapon. I'm pretty sure it's in The Last Boy Scout. Yeah. So uh, hopefully he, I hope he has grown along with uh, some of the rest of us. You know, I was actually surprised. So I warned you that I watched the last action hero before ahead of our conversation. Um, yeah, I was actually surprised that he was one of the writers on that. Um, yeah, well, that was, um, I mean, he was one of the, you know, the nine people who was brought in to make fixes and do polishes and work on specifically. I, I actually, uh, I am looking forward to looking at that again because I have not seen it since 1993. I mean, I went and saw it opening night with a huge sense of anticipation. And I remember feeling kind of confounded by it. And having to like apologize to my my friends who I had said this is going to be great, <laughs> they were like, "No, let's go see Jurassic Park again." <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm looking forward to to uh, seeing it. You know, almost thirty years later, it's it's a pretty good send up of '80s masculinity. Um, so you know, if people are familiar with the movie, there's a film within a film, and yeah, Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger's Jack Slater, uh, it through magic. Yeah, it's a little a little purple rose of Cairo, uh, a little bit cinema paradiso, a little uh, lethal weapon, dirty Harry. I don't know what would the yeah. He ends so he ends up in the real world uh, with this kid, uh, 
and he does things like he punches a car window and says, oh, that actually really hurts. Um, at one point, he admits he enjoys talking to women. <laughs> I think he says it's pretty neat. Uh, so there's a lot of poking fun at Schwarzenegger's persona, um, but it, it flopped. It flopped hard. Um, I don't so know if, hard. Yeah. I don't know if audiences were ready to see their action heroes as jokes in the way that that movie present. Yeah. Um, and then Arnold's comeback after that, the following summer was, was true lies, which is, uh, you know, was also an action comedy. And I remember a lot of the discussion about that being, cause I mean, true lies was already shooting when last action hero came out and, and bombed. I mean, that's a, a little different because it, you know, it's, it's Jim Cameron. And I mean, it also has the, the spectacle going for it. Um, but, uh, I mean, John McTiernan was a well-established hit maker in this genre too i mean he had gone from predator to die hard to hunt for red october um i think all those movies are still great and they were all huge hits yeah and then after last action hero he worked on die hard with a vengeance which i think we both can agree is the better die hard sequel it's it's the second best die hard movie yes agreed (laughs) i keep waiting for someone because i'm a big marvel fan and winter soldier is to me is one of the best Marvel movies. And I keep waiting for someone to make that connection between the, oh, yeah, elevator, the elevator scene. Yeah. <laughs> elevator scene in Die Hard with the Vengeance, elevator scene in Winter Soldier. Although the woman yeah. in Winter Soldier is a little more well choreographed than just, you know, or superhero me. Then he, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, well, cause Steve Rogers can't just shoot these guys. Right. right. <laughs> uh, you know, but I mean, Steve Rogers is not uh, coming. Well, I, I realize I'm, you know, Steve Rogers is like the ultimate underdog in, in the way and that he's this, you know, physically emaciated uh, guy before he gets the, the super soldier serum. But with the heart of a tiger, Matt, the, the, the heart of a champion. Um, yeah, I, I love that payoff in, in Die Hard with a vengeance with the, the lottery tickets where we establish in like the first scene of the movie or the second scene where we're reintroduced to John McClane as a drunk, you know, who's uh, on suspension. And they, they plant that seed that all the cops play their badge numbers in the lottery, you know, and that comes back 70, 80 minutes later in the elevator. Yeah, he just yeah. happens to see the reflection of the badge in the uh, elevator yep. door. Uh, it's and- so good. See, this is, and I'm going to say, this is why I don't like the Fast and Furious movies because there is nothing that precise in them. Like no one is thoughtful enough to say, you know, if we if we plant this here, we can pay it off over here. Uh, there's just I don't know. There's just nothing going on. And and how difficult is that really? I mean, it's not. <laughs> we could we could think of something like that in a few minutes, right? It, it it's not uh, it's not hard to do, but they they just don't bother. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with me. Uh, This has been really fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Action movies might seem like escapism, but they aren't created in a vacuum. They're both shaped by our national identity and in a kind of feedback loop further shape our national identity in return. They also act as mechanisms for the social construction of masculinity and, considering how women are treated in these films, femininity. I could do a whole other episode on that, and uh, maybe I will. I want to thank my guest, Chris Klimek, for joining the show. It's always fun to talk to someone who gets all your film references. If you're interested in the ideas highlighted in this show, Susan Jeffords has two books on the topic, The Remasculization of America, Gender in the Vietnam War, and Hard Bodies, Hollywood Masculinity in the Reagan Era. If you really hated this show, yeah, don't read them. This podcast is produced, recorded, and mixed by me, Matt Sedlar. You can find me on Twitter at, at Matt Sedlar. 
This month, I also composed and recorded all the music you heard. I'm generally exhausted. Join me next month as sociology ruins something else you love.